0: Okay, great to see you all again, hope you're all doing well, I should have introduced myself when I did the notices, my name's Phil, um, I'm one of the leaders here and uh, it's just a great pleasure to to be with you all this morning and if we haven't met personally, then I would like to meet you at some point today. Um, Yeah, it's great that you could be here with us this morning. I'm going to be reading today uh, a bit from the Bible, so if you have yours with you, then that would be great. Um, If you don't, don't worry, I'm going to read it out. Um, We're going to be in John chapter 6. Why don't, we just, uh, why don't we just pray before we, before we start and just uh, invite God again. Oh, Lord Jesus, we, we love you, Lord. We thank you for being among us, Lord, being happy to come among us and speak to us. Lord, thank you for what you've already spoken to us this morning about the greatness of your love and your provision for us. We. We love you, Jesus. We love it when you come amongst us. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come again. Lord, I pray for myself that you would help me, Lord, to communicate your word this morning, that you would be glorified. God, I pray for everyone here, Lord. We just open their hearts to what you want to speak to them this morning. God, I pray for every church. In Glasgow, Lord, that's faithfully preaching your gospel, Lord, this morning. We ask that you would bless them, Lord, that they would be fruitful, Lord, this morning. God, we think of local churches, St. Silas, Lord, Rehope, God, C7 in town, God. We ask you to bless, God, their hearts, Lord. Give them fruitfulness and the body of Christ right across the city, Lord. God, we pray for Alan. Lord, uh, up uh, preaching in Inverness, God, bless him up there, Lord, bless that church through him up there. God, pray for Andy and Teresa, Lord, away on holiday, bless them, God, as they take some time out. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Lord God, for your goodness to us. Amen. Amen. Great. Okay, well, let's read together this section it's a, it's a pretty famous bit. Uh, I may mean, you know that uh, all of the Bible is, is good. This is particularly famous. It's a story that appears actually in all four of, of the Gospels, which makes it almost but not quite unique. Um, it's, it's a really big deal. This is the story of, of Jesus feeding 5,000 people like you do. Uh, okay, so chapter 6 and verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberius, and a large crowd was following him. Why? Well, because they saw the signs that he was doing among the sick. That's why they were following him. They'd seen what he'd done, and they were amazed. Maybe there were some sick people in this crowd, and they thought, I want to get to Jesus because he can heal me. Jesus went up on a mountain. Normally, when Jesus goes up on mountains, what he's doing is he's retreating from the crowd uh, to, to be with his Father, to have time of fellowship and intimacy with his Father in heaven. In this story, the crowd kind of pursue him up the mountain uh, with him. Uh, now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus turned to Philip and said, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered. You can just imagine Philip, you know shaking his head, 200 denarii, which apparently is about eight months' wages, would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. So now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, I guess the story is in some ways, I mean, it's about a lot of things, but I I don't have time to tell you about all the things that it's about. Uh, And frankly, I don't know all the things that it's about. Uh, But I suppose in some ways, what this story is about is about pressure. Uh, Pressure coming upon people. Um, Pressure that Jesus even experienced Uh, the crowd that was following him because of the healings that he was doing. And uh, the Bible's very clear, a servant is not greater than his master. And uh, we should not be surprised that pressure also in life comes upon us. Uh, Any person or any church indeed where things like healings are happening regularly are going to uh, over time, come under pressure because people are hungry. People are hungry for healing. People are hungry for uh, the kingdom of God. People are hungry to be forgiven. You may be here this morning and actually that's what you're hungry for. You've come along because actually you, you know, you, you consider yourself a Christian but you just feel crap about yourself all the time and you think that God Feels crap about you, and you may be here because actually you're you're hungry to know His love for you. You're hungry to not feel like the way you do. That's why you're here this morning. And listen, if that is you, then I am so glad you're here this morning because uh, because Jesus does not want you to leave the way you came in. Uh, He wants to change that thing. He wants you to know the reality of how he feels about you. The same would be true if you're, if you're sick. Maybe you're here this morning and you're sick. You're thinking, actually, maybe, you know, I've heard there's, some, there's been a few healings at this church. Maybe I'll go along. Listen, if you're here for that, then that's great because we would love to pray with you at the end. We pray for the sick every week and uh, we're increasingly seeing God break in and do amazing things. And uh, no doubt the same will happen this morning. So if you're here because of that, then it's great to see you. But the truth is, That 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 can bring a pressure. It can bring a pressure upon us, Um, and you know, even even just the normal stuff of life. Let's be honest, guys. There's a lot of pressures in life. Life is busy, is it not? You know, I'm looking around this church. I'm seeing people who are you know great men who are trying to do a great job in the office. Uh, I'm seeing mums, you know, who are, are trying to juggle the different commitments of their life and raise great kids, you know, fathers who are trying to, trying to do a great job in the office and then come home and be a great dad. Listen, there's pressure in life. Is that not true? That is true. Pre- pre- there is pressure in life. And, and one of the things that this story is about is about Jesus teaching his disciples about how to deal with pressure, how to cope with pressure, and come through it in a good way, uh, and that's what I'd like to share with you this morning, just a few things that Jesus says, or things that he tries to teach his disciples about coping with pressure. The first thing that he does, uh, and you've got to love Jesus for this, is he asks his disciples to do something that they can't do. You love that? He asks them to do something that they can't do. It's great. It's, about, it's like asking me to do 100 keepy-ups. I can't do it. <laughs> I'll give you three or four. Five at the most. You know. The third one will maybe be a cannon off the shin. You know, I'll have to chase it. You know these kind of keepy-ups. You know, but so don't ask me to do 100 keepy-ups. I can't do it. And, uh, but Jesus is, is very happy to ask his disciples to do something that they cannot do. And, and, and this is actually not the, uh, the only time he does this. He seems to make a habit throughout his journey with the disciples of asking them to do things that are impossible. Um, he says, he says in, uh, the, as I say, this story is recounted uh, in different ways uh, in the Gospels, uh, but in the version in Matthew in chapter 14, Jesus makes it clear. He says, send the crowds away. Uh, uh, The disciples say to him, send the crowds away to go into the village and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. There it is. Very clear. You give them something to eat. Absolutely no idea. They must have been just, I mean, just put yourself, come on, put yourself in in this story. Don't just read it like something that, you know, Happened a long time ago. Put yourself in the story. You are there with Jesus. There's 5,000 people on the mountainside. You're saying, listen, send them away. I mean, there's a village nearby. They need to go and get something to eat. And Jesus turns to you and says, no, they'll stay here, and you will give them something to eat. I mean, that's either going to make you laugh or cry, isn't it? (laughs) That that kind of statement. But that's what he's saying. He's asking them to do something that the cannot do. And as I say, this is always, this this just seems to be the way that Jesus operates. In the very next uh, chapter, um, uh, or in the very next section where it's recounted in Matthew, you have the moment where Peter walks on water. I mean, what is that if it's not something that is impossible to do? Um, There's a great moment where Peter… says to him, Lord, if it's you, this is Jesus walking past the boat on the water, and Peter shouts to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And it says, and he said, come. (laughs) I mean, that's that's, that's him telling, come. That's Jesus telling Peter to do something that he can't do, walk on water. Great, there's a great section, uh, Matthew 10 where, uh, where Jesus is sending his uh, disciples out. I love this bit. He says, these 12, Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're thinking, yes, I can do this. I can do that. And then he says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I can do that. I can proclaim it. And then he says this, heal the sick Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. And you'd think. (laughs) Heal the sick. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Raise the dead. Jesus is is telling them to raise dead people to life again. As I say, that's either going to make you laugh as in no chance, uh, or cry, because you'll feel the pressure of of, of having to try and do something you can't do. Um, Jesus also tells this, I mean, listen, think about this. Think about what a taboo and how uncomfortable we might be with this. Uh, This verse, Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to the paralytic, that is somebody who cannot walk, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He tells him to do something that he can't do. He tells him to get up. He's paralyzed. That's the one thing he can't do. You could could have told him to do anything else, but no. Pick up your bed and go home. Miraculous things like this, make us aware of the fact that we are, Jesus is asking us to do things that we cannot do. What it does is it forces us into dependency upon him. It forces us to the point where we know, Jesus, I cannot do this on my own. I need you. I need to be in relationship with you if this is going to happen. When you take your foot out of the boat and stick it on the water, at that moment, you know that you're not going to be keeping your feet above the waves. There needs to be something in your relationship with God that's keeping you afloat. It's not going to be you because everybody knows that normal people sink. It forces us into intimate relationship with God. When Jesus, that's what Jesus is teaching them. He's teaching them the, the absolute essential nature of their relationship with God. But I want to say that the great mistake that we make in the Christian life is thinking that we can actually do anything without Him what we often think is, well, I need God to pray for the sick, but actually I don't need him to go to work. I need God if I'm going to walk on water, but actually if I'm just going to walk to the shops, (laughs) I can do that on my own. But a couple of chapters after this, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that this is nonsense, complete nonsense. Nonsense. Jesus says this Abide in me in John 15, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Everybody say nothing. 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 And if you look into the original Greek there, you find out that that word actually means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Nil, nish, nientes, <laughs> nada, zero zip, nothing. What an extraordinary statement. Jesus is saying, is, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing really of any consequence. Nothing of any ultimate value. Nothing that will bear fruit. Nothing that will last. Nothing. Apart from me, you will do nothing, Jesus says. It's a great mistake in the Christian life to think that we only need him for the miraculous. The truth is we need him for every moment of life. That's true, isn't it? That's true, mums who are at home screaming baby, you know, um, dinner on, trying to do your work, thinking, man, I've got a presentation to give at the office tomorrow. You need, you need God, don't you? isn't that true? That is true. I often find myself needing God, particularly when my third years turn up. (laughs) We can do nothing. Listen, it's quite liberating, actually. It's quite liberating uh, to realize that you can't do anything without Him. In fact, I really encourage you to embrace this. You can do nothing without Him. It's really liberating when you're praying for a sick person, when you realize, I can't make this happen. It's great. It's not down to me. I can't make this happen. It's a great thing. It's interesting. that I mean, this, to be honest, it's, it sh- this shouldn't be a surprise for us because this is the gospel, folks. Isn't it true that at the very moment we come to Jesus and say, actually, do you know what? I can't do this on my own. I can't live this life. I can't. I've seen your holiness. I've seen your standards. I've seen your goodness. And I realized that I can't, I can't do this. I can't generate this. You know, I've tried keeping New Year's resolutions and they're all broken by the third week in January. I've tried to be a nice person. I've tried to be good enough for you. At the very moment when you realize that you can't make it, that's the moment when the provision of heaven meets you. And there's Jesus, with all your sin on his shoulders on the cross, dying the death that you should have died so that you can be raised to life with him and have the relationship with the father that he's always enjoyed. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. The gospel is when you admit that you can't do it on your own, you find that you're walking into heaven's provision for you. So embrace, I want you to to encourage you to embrace this reality. You cannot do it on your own. If we don't admit it, if we don't admit it, then I want to say this, that pressure comes upon us and we open the door to a whole manner of unpleasant things we open the door to depression because we feel that we should be generating something this should be working i should be doing this and we fail and we feel it's our fault it's all our fault you keep feeling keep feeling keep feeling keep feeling keep feeling keep pretty soon you're depressed you think i'm useless look at philip in this. You know, where, where will we buy bread so that these people may eat? There's a kind of despair about that. Don't ask me. I don't know. You're saying that to God. Don't ask me. I don't know what to do. There's a despair that can creep in when you think it's down to you. But I want to say that you actually open the door to more than just that. You open the door to pride. And soon after that, to things like envy and jealousy. Look at Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament. A man called by God to be king over Israel. We read about this in our small group the other week. A man called to be king over Israel. But imagine that he had to make it work himself. A man really, in the end, who was seen to be without a relationship with God. And so when David came along, who seemed actually, to be honest, a bit better qualified, you know, more talented, you know, he killed a few more thousand than Saul had. Saul got jealous and envious of him. He didn't realize that actually the kingdom of God operates through calling and relationship and not through ability primarily. We can think that. We can think that actually there's somebody in the worship band who's a bit better than us. What am I doing here? You know, I could could stand up here thinking, do you know what? I'm probably not the best public speaker in this church. What am I doing up here? you may be thinking that yourself <laughs> right now. <laughs> but the truth is, praise God, that <laughs> that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. It works through calling, and it works through relationship. It's not primarily about performance, because it's not, it's not supposed to be down to us. It's not supposed to fall on us as a heavy pressure. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. I suppose what Jesus is doing when he's asking them to do something that they cannot do without him is really he's inviting them. He's inviting Philip in this passage, to become someone that he couldn't be apart from him. You see, Jesus, one of the most wonderful things about Jesus, just reading through the Gospels, is just the confidence that he has in his heavenly Father. That when he meets uh, an obstacle, a problem, pressure He's always confident that his Father in heaven is going to be there for him. Always. So when he stands in front of Lazarus' tomb, you know, there's a dead guy in there, and he's told them that he's going to resurrect him. I mean, there's some pressure involved in that. And he just stands there and says, Father, I thank you that you hear me. I thank you that you always hear me in the garden of Gethsemane when Peter's, you know, chopping off ears and stuff like that. Totally wrong end of the stick as usual. Jesus is saying, actually, put your sword away. Don't you think that actually I could ask my father and even now he would send me battalions of angels to get me out of this? He was completely, always completely confident that his relationship with the Father meant provision for him in crisis. Because he knew he was a son. He knew that relationship with God. And I suppose really what Jesus is doing is he's using an impossible situation for Philip to invite him into a relationship And I want to say God is often doing that with us as well. When you meet impossible situations where you fail and fail and fail and fail, where there are things in your life where you think, I'll never get through on that, or just difficulties at work, difficulties at home, difficulties in church, there are pressures all around us. And God is asking you to do something and you think, I can't do that. It may just be that actually what he's doing is inviting you in to a closer relationship. To press in a bit further for more of him, more of his provision, more confidence that he will be there for you. You see, it's interesting, the reason that Jesus is not feeling the pressure that Philip is feeling in this passage, well, it says it. It says it in verse 6. He said this, that Jesus said that to Philip, to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. He wasn't phased. He wasn't worried. He wasn't panicked. He knew what was going to do. He was going to break the bread, and then he was going to feed everyone. There was going to be a miracle. He knew the provision was coming. And so, people who know, well, I guess Jesus, what he did is he, he knew what the Father was doing. That's what he said, isn't it? He? he said, I, I only do what I see the Father doing. That's kind of how he operated. And if, again, a few chapters later, just before Jesus goes to the cross, he says to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends because everything I've heard from the father I've shared with you. What Jesus is doing is he's inviting Philip into that friendship place before the father where you know what the father's doing. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be panicked crisis because you can know what the father is doing is that what you do when you when you come up against pressure i met somebody once they always seemed to have this phrase on their lips and i thought it's a good one i must adopt it when difficulty comes he always just said father what are you doing it's a good one it's a good phrase to have it's a good prayer to pray in crisis father what are you doing now I know that I've, I've got relationship with you. I know you can, you'll talk to me. I know you, you'll explain. I know that this provision for me. Father, what are you doing? Friends know what the Father is doing. And that is what Jesus is inviting Philip and us into. That ever close relationship with the Father. That friendship. I want to say, just as an aside, that Jesus, well, sometimes it works like this with when we get into pressure. Sometimes uh, we do things that Jesus never asked us to do, and then we get mad with him because he won't help us do it. Isn't that true? Sometimes that's, I, listen, that's very true in my life very true in my life. I've, I've spent long periods of my Christian life being mad at Jesus for not doing things that he never told me to do, not helping me out. There's a great part in the Bible in Luke 10 of Martha and Mary. It's a fascinating story. Martha invites Jesus into the house, not Mary. Martha invites Jesus into the house, but then goes to the kitchen Gets on with our work and moans at Jesus for not, you know, why aren't you getting people to help me? We can be a bit like that sometimes. I can certainly be like that sometimes. I can invite Jesus in, but really why I'm inviting him in is because I want him to get with my program. And when he doesn't, I get mad at him. But Jesus was always aware of what the Father was doing and that's what he did. That's what he wants. That's friendship. That's friendship, folks, that we would know what the Father was doing and that's what we would do. We wouldn't waste our time trying to invite Jesus in to help with our programs, but we would understand the heart of the Father, primarily the heart of the Father, and then we would get on with that because it's in that place that we can be sure of his Provision. The second thing that um, that Jesus showed them here was that they needed to be continually aware of God's presence. Uh, in uh, verses five and six, um, as I've, I've read before, it says He knew what He would do. He knew what He would do because He was aware of the presence of His Father. interesting that the disciples do not appear to be aware of the presence of God in this story. Um, <laughs> it's a great, I love it when it's uh, recounted in Matthew. Uh, it's just the contrast between the two reactions, the reaction of Jesus and the reaction of the disciples to this large crowd following on them up the hill in a rather threatening way, I would have thought. Uh, is this in Matthew 14? When he went ashore, that's Jesus, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. That's Jesus' reaction. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. <laughs> <laughs> and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to the villages to buy food for themselves. I love that. This is a... You know, Jesus is performing all these miracles. People are getting healed and delivered and saved. The the disciples' assessment is, this is a desolate place. This is terrible. I I love that. It's so encouraging. So encouraging. They were... They seemed totally unaware of the presence of God, completely. (laughs) Jesus was so aware of the nearness of God, the nearness of His Father. Often we are more aware of actually the negative circumstances that surround us than His ability to break in. I'm not saying that we should ignore negative situations, that's stupidity, (laughs) or ignore. Perhaps you are in a desolate place, genuinely in a desolate place. I'm not saying you should ignore that, that would be foolishness. But what I am saying is God is asking us to be continually aware, more aware of Him, more aware of His provision, more aware of His love for us. Than we are of the desolate place that surrounds us. You may find when you do that, that you're actually not in as a desolate a place as you thought you were. He had a different way of thinking about it. It reminds me of um, that great Shakespeare play, Henry V. I'm sure you all know it well. I'm an English teacher, so I'm just going to give you a bit of Shakespeare. I feel it's my responsibility. Um, it was a great moment before, uh, before the Battle of Agincourt, where um, All the people surrounding Henry are uh, are kind of saying, you know, with the reinforcements, we thought reinforcements would come. There's hardly any of us here. We're going to get absolutely slaughtered by the French. This is a disaster. And Henry says, don't send for a single reinforcement. He says this the fewer the number, the greater the share of honor. He had a different perspective he had a different perspective on the same things because he was anticipating victory. That is what we should be like. We should be anticipating God breaking in among us and doing great things. And so even when we are genuinely in a desolate place, our reaction is different to that of the reaction of others around us. He knew that he was really, well, it says at his baptism that the the heavens opened above him and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And somebody else has commented that uh, there's no record in the Bible of that open heaven closing again. Jesus walked his whole life with that awareness that heaven was open. He had access to the Father his whole life in, in any situation. And actually, that's what he won for us. That same relationship, that same place before the Father, where we're aware continually of his presence. Now, here we are in church. I mean, if anywhere we're going to get the presence of God, it's got to be here, surely. Let me ask you, are you aware of the presence of God right now? Are you? Are you aware that he's here? It's a good thing to get into a habit of doing, actually, Just in life, generally, just before you get out of the car at work in the morning, you think, God, just remember He's there. Remember He's there. It'll change your perspective on things. It'll change the way you you go into things. I'll be honest with you, I don't always do this. Sometimes I get out of the car just thinking, oh my goodness. but listen, we're supposed to have an open heaven. We're supposed to have that same connection with the Father that Jesus had. Very quickly, um, he showed Jesus in this story that giving thanks is actually the key to keeping us aware of the presence of God, giving thanks. When he got the bread, he gave thanks for it, and it multiplied, giving thanks. I want to encourage you to be thankful for what God has done in your life. He's done, there's not a person here that God hasn't done an unbelievable amount for, an unbelievable amount for. I mean, if you're here you were a Christian, you were headed for the precipice. You were headed for eternity without him. You were headed for the fires of hell. That suddenly got loud. (laughs) (laughs) And guess what? He rescued you. He rescued you. Listen, even if that is all he's done for you, and I, I know it's not, but even if it was, my goodness, shouldn't we spend the rest of our lives thanking him? Take a deep breath. Now, the reason you did that is because God allowed you to do it. Every breath that you breathe comes from him. Thankfulness keeps you aware of the goodness of God. Thankfulness keeps you aware of his presence and his provision in your life. When you're in a tight spot, here's my suggestion. You give thanks for what he's done in your life. You give thanks for what He's going to do for you. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, at the road to Emmaus, that story where the disciples are all down and thinking, you know, we thought that Jesus would be the Messiah, but, you know, then He died on the cross, and we don't know what to make of it now. And it turns out that they're actually walking beside Jesus, but they've not known that they're walking beside Jesus. And then they go into the house And they break bread, and this apparent stranger gives thanks for the food. And at that moment, the eyes of the disciples are opened. Why is that? Because giving thanks gives revelation that God is in the room, that he's near. When you give thanks, and suddenly the eyes are opened. When you're in a tight spot, give thanks. And suddenly you'll realize Jesus is sitting next to me. He's in the room. It's going to be okay. Okay, last thing, just briefly. I love this little boy in this story who has the, the, the loaves and the fish Interestingly, he's not mentioned in any of the other accounts. I love that the disciples—you know—not only do they say, you know, don't let the children come to Jesus, you know, they'll just hassle them, but you know, when when he does, they do let one come. And he's got his loaves and his fishes. They write him out of the blooming story. <laughs> it's it's only John who, who who keeps him in the story. Um, you know, suddenly they want the they want the child to come. He's got he's got something. And they bring bring him his little boy with his loaves and his fish with that childlike faith, no doubt. Actually, if he gives his lunch away to Jesus, not only will he get it back, but also Jesus can do something miraculous with it that will feed other people too. And it's actually in that context that Jesus gives thanks. And I guess I want to say to people who are wholeheartedly serving in whatever area you are. But I felt particularly as I was preparing this for mums, I want to say that actually where people are wholeheartedly serving, you know, they're, they're kind of doing what they know how to do with their kid, and then they're praying that Jesus will do all these other things that they know they can't you know, they're kind of changing nappies and praying that one day their kid will grow into an amazing man or woman of God. And they're doing it with all their heart. That's actually the context in which Jesus gives thanks. And I want to say that actually Jesus is thankful. It's a couple of weeks before Mother's Day. Who cares? It's always Mother's Day for God. Uh, Jesus is thankful for that kind of service, and he can actually do something miraculous with that kind of service. I know that it's not just mums; there'll be lots of different people in different settings. You know, we we are privileged to have a few examples of these kinds of people among us. You know, people like Susie Smith. You know, people like Dougal Deems. People who are just—they've just—I know that we can all serve but there are some people who actually, they're an example in a way that not all of us are, you know, about, what it, about how to serve with a good heart. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You know, God loves that. He's thankful for that. He can do stuff with that, miraculous stuff with that. Um, so know that. Know that God loves that, and honor those people who behave like that and show us that. I think just as a postscript, I want to say this. that in the end, um, it's interesting that this is a story maybe about pressure, but it's not a pressure that Jesus feels. It's a pressure that the disciples feel. In the end, actually, the crowd tried to make Jesus do something that he doesn't want to do. They try to make him king. They try to squeeze him into the world's mold. Yeah, you're the Messiah, but, you know, stick a crown in your head and be a military leader. And Jesus then refused to come under other people's pressure. He refused to um, fit their mold. And I believe that people here, sometimes, some, do you know what, let's be honest, sometimes church can do that. Sometimes church can actually try and squeeze you into something that you just don't, don't think fits for you. You know, you can feel a pressure to conform, to be this certain kind of person um, in order to kind of, you know, fit in around this place, you know. And I want to I pray for you if you're like that this morning. I believe God wants to release you from that pressure and that burden Um, to conform to a certain way. Listen, God made you the way he made you, and he loves you the way you are, and he wants to use you and use the gifts that are in you, and he wants you to be free in that. So if you're feeling the weight of other people's expectations, it could be parental expectations, it could be the expectations of leaders or other people around you, then I want you to be released from that this morning. So I want to pray with you. Man, there's so much to respond to. and God's going to do so much in the next 10 minutes. Why don't we stand? Can we get the band back up?